I can't predict the future, but what I can do is I can ask myself, who's the person that I want to be during this time? And, and who's the person that my future me will say they're proud of? And by doing that, I was able to kind of really focus on the priorities. Welcome back to the Thriving Lawyers podcast. We have a excellent guest today, and I don't need to explain it anymore. You'll, you'll see in a moment why I've said that. We have Sagal Barnes here, Chief Operating Officer for Lawline and a very, very good friend. And uh, actually, we have a second guest also, someone who hasn't been on the podcast for a while. My partner at Real Time Sealy, Chris Osborne, is actually on the podcast today. I'm back. <laughs> <laughs> kind of. And Seagal, we, we, Michael does not say that to all the guests. That he's just saying you hold a special place in our heart, and there's no words to quite capture that, but that's as close as we can get. And I just want to say the feeling is mutual, and I am really excited to be here. So Seagal, uh, thanks again for giving us your time. I know this is a crazy time for everyone, and, and we'll hear more from Seagal about the challenges she is facing during this uh, time of COVID restrictions. So thank you so much for being here. Of course, absolutely. So I guess I'd like to start just with maybe just a quick thumbnail uh, sketch of your journey as a lawyer and then what you do at, at Lawline. Absolutely. So I graduated from law school in 2010. As many people know, 2010 was a tough year. It was right after the 2007-2008 financial crisis. So I went into the workforce uh, during a time that was very difficult for lawyers to get jobs. I graduated in New York City at Cardozo Law School, and I practiced for about Almost two years, I was in litigation in, in two different firms. And then I moved over to where I am today, Lawline. I've been at Lawline for eight years now. I started actually at Lawline as a program attorney, which for people that don't understand what that is, it's basically a licensed attorney who's hired to really identify content that would be useful for attorneys that also fulfill the continuing legal edu education requirements for attorneys. So I did that for a while met a lot of different people, kind of climbed my way up the ladder, and now run the company as Chief Operating Officer of Lawline. Yeah, that's a, a nice journey you took. And, and Lawline is such a wonderful organization. So basically, Lawline offers CLE programs for attorneys. Is that right? Correct. Yes. We are primarily online provider of continuing legal education. We do provide some live courses locally for New York and New Jersey attorneys to help them fulfill their live requirements. But generally speaking, we really kind of hone in on the online learning experience. And we create programming that is very specific to that experience. And we've been doing it for almost 15 years now. What led you to leave practicing law and transition to law line? When I went into the practice of law, I think I had a very specific idea of what I wanted to do, which I think a lot of us do when we, when we graduate. When I was in college, I was an English major, a writer still am. I love to write. And I felt that I could use the law to like help protect writers and to empower writers and represent them. Just a little a tidbit you shared when we were chatting before the interviews. You've done some screenwriting, is that right? Horror pictures, I, I think. Is I have. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> when <laughs> I was in college, I did. <laughs> yeah. I wrote I a horror I movie. That. 
I don't think I knew that. And I didn't know about the writing piece, the angle to it. I find that interesting because law obviously is a place where a lot of us who like doing creative type things with words and a lot of filmmaker type people like Michael as well. Mm-hmm. So very, very intriguing. Yeah, it, I, I wrote a screenplay. It was called Seven of Swords. I can share it with you. Uh, you just can't judge me too too much on it. Um, I, would, but, I uh, would read it. I would read it excitedly and with no judgment, just love. I mean, okay, all right, all right. Cool. Yeah. I'll share it with you guys afterwards. Maybe we'll make a CLE out of it, Seagal. That would be an incredible way <laughs> to kind of full circle that that movie. Um, it yeah. would be a scary movie, though, for sure. <laughs> That was kind of the intention of and what I thought I was going to be when I when I got out of law school. And, you know, again, I I graduated at a time that there wasn't a lot of jobs. So I kind of interviewed like crazy while also studying for the bar. And I landed a job in litigation. I was in the Bronx uh, representing landlords and landlord tenant disputes. A long way from uh, writers and uh, yes. creatives. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And you know, I knew that when, when I took the job, but I also felt very grateful and lucky that I had a job, whereas many of my colleagues at that time did not. Or um, I don't know if lawyers remember, but during that time, uh, not only could people not get jobs, um, they couldn't get even unpaid internships. And in some situations, people were like paying to have inter- internships. It was a really weird time. And so I felt very grateful, but also it was a it was a struggle for me because I never really anticipated being a litigator, uh, never mind the type of litigator that I was. And it was a very high volume practice. So I was doing 30, 40 cases a day. And then I moved to another litigation practice, tax lien foreclosure. And ultimately what I realized was I started to identify what I loved about practicing and what I didn't. And I, I just am not an adversarial person. I don't like to fight with people. I don't want that to be part of my every day. But I did really enjoy meeting you know, the people that I represented, even the people that I was on the other side of the table. I really enjoyed speaking with opposing counsel and I really enjoyed learning about how to be better at the practice. And I liked mentoring others and I liked when they mentored me. And so I, I kind of started to try to think about what can I do with that information? How do I kind of keep the love of the law that I clearly had without having to feel like I was fighting people and or like on some sort of different side of the table? And that's how I found Lawline. Lawline is all about relationships with lawyers, teaching lawyers, mentoring lawyers, mentoring each uh, other. And um, I haven't left since. Been there for eight see, years. See, it took me about probably. 20 years into my legal career to realize that I actually don't like the fighting and the controversy. Yeah. I came to it late. I did litigation for so long and only in recent years have I just found more of a home, whether it's teaching like we do, but also just doing creative stuff, but also collaborative law mediating. Mm, I I don't have the joy of the fight anymore. I I envy people who who discovered that somewhat earlier. (laughs) Absolutely. I would say it took me six years. We're talking about yep. <laughs> how long it took all of us to, to decide that I actually didn't want to practice law anymore, anymore but I can relate, Seagal, to what you said about I, that I did, as a lawyer, enjoy helping and advising folks. That part of it I wanted to have in whatever career that I moved to. And now as a counselor, I counsel lawyers, and, and also we do our CLE programs for lawyers, so I still get to work with lawyers, just not uh, in the practice. You guys do an incredible job of it, too. Truly. Thank you, Seagal. You said Mm -hmm. that exactly how I wrote it down for you. (laughs) 
<laughs> but you know, it's interesting though. You you said so. You dealt with the struggles that lawyers and many folks had after the 2008 financial crisis, and now you're dealing with a new one. Not yeah. just you, of course. We all are a different one. But I wonder, and and you don't necessarily need to answer this question now, but you can. But but I, I I'm wondering how what you learned about coping during that time in 2010 has informed how you're dealing with COVID and its restrictions now. Have you thought about that? Is there anything that you've been able to carry over, any wisdom from or experiences from then to now? Yeah. I mean, I think the major one, and it's something that I actually reflected on right before COVID hit, I, I wrote a piece on when we hit 2020, like the 10 things I learned in the past decade. And the main, the major one that I learned that I have been applying for a while now and, and do apply now is where you work is just as important as what you do. And one of the things that I really recognized early on when I was practicing was I didn't feel very supported in either of the, the jobs that I was in, my practicing jobs. And I wanted to ensure that when, when this pandemic hit, that I was a very supportive leader to the people that mm. were working for Lawline. To recognize people's struggles, regardless pandemic, financial crisis, it's it's always good as a leader to recognize where people are coming from and what they're going through, and not kind of judge them for it or say that that's representative of their larger abilities, but rather like work with that because that creates not only a, a sense of of relationship and loyalty to the company and to you as a leader, but it also is just like the right thing to do. And so mm-hmm. one of the things that I didn't feel when I was practicing was I didn't feel supported. I didn't feel understood or recognized for like the struggles that I was going through being a baby lawyer coming out into a financial crisis. And so myself, as well as the CEO of the company, David Schnerman of Lawline, we, we made a, a pact that we were going to do everything that we could to support our employees during this time. Wow. And that is definitely the biggest thing that I've taken from one, from one crisis to another is support the people around you. We need it. What did it look like? I'm just curious. You have, for instance, how the lack of support sort of showed up or how you felt that just as an example. Sure. I think for me, I graduated college and law school with an enormous amount of debt. I did not have any financial assistance, so everything was loans. I'm definitely one of those people that it feels like they're never going to pay off their student loans. And I, I remember being in a situation where the dynamics were, there were so many lawyers out of work and I was just trying to get a job and I had to negotiate really strongly in my first job and negotiate. I couldn't get a good salary. I mean, my salary was really low, but I, and I got no, I didn't have any health benefits, but I remember fighting really hard for a Metro card. I was like, I need at the very least money to get to work every day. Otherwise, like this is actually a loss for me. <laughs> like I'm actually not making anything. I need to at least cover my commuting expenses. I don't want to be negative about places that I worked for, but like, and I think everyone's kind of trying to survive in different ways. But I think the fact that I even had to sure. negotiate like that and not just be given like, yeah, you know what? Like, let me cover your Metro card, your $3 a day whatever it was at the time, you know what I mean? Just small things like that, you know, your financial struggles, like the, the the fact that my commute was like two hours a day, you know, the ability to be able to sometimes take a, a paid vacation day or paid sick day, you know, even if it wasn't part of the initial plan, like I never got those things. You know, this is what you are, you're by the hour. You know, I, I wasn't even, uh, my first job, I was a salary, but then my second one, I was by the hour, my second job. And it was, this is your by the hour. You don't work, you don't get paid, you're sick, or you have a family member that's ill or 
you're just tired, right? You just don't get paid for that time. And I was had a ton of debt and I was trying to do my best and just being able to have someone around me, a leader, a leader in that organization that like had some compassion and like made me feel, I wasn't asking for the world, but you know, was like, you know what, take a day and I'll still pay you. You know, you're, you're yeah. feeling ill or you're, you're actually have the flu or whatever it was that just those little things kind of go a long way. <laughs> it's, a, it's surprising how much the, those little kind of things mean though. It's not some huge grand no, extravagant not, plan. Yeah. It's uh, mm-hmm. can you, allow your lawyers, your staff to be human, to have challenges and and actually meet them in it. Right. Yeah. I, I've worked in places where I, I had that and others that I didn't. And, and the difference is really palpable night and day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And can you as the leader be human as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. And show you, your humanity to, uh, to your employees. Was it hard for you, Seagal, to leave practicing law and go to law line? Did you feel any conflict in that, in, in leaving the practice? Really? No, I did not. I think the only conflict maybe if I had to reach was from my peers and my parents who were like, you just spent a ton of money on law school and a ton of time and a ton of energy and not just law school, but bar prep and the bar exam and all the applications and all of the work. I mean, really, truly, like, you know, we all know blood, sweat and tears to like get through that process. And it's been only like two years, not even it was like not even two, it was like one year and like nine months or something, right? Uh It was almost like people thought I was giving up. What I had to constantly tell people was like, I'm not giving up. I'm deciding to move forward in a way that's going to make me happier. And I will say that while I was interviewing at different places, because obviously I I needed, I wasn't, I was still a contract attorney everywhere I was going. I wasn't a full-time, I wasn't given any benefits or vacation or anything. I was just like kind of litigating and working, but I was never given like title of an associate or anything like that. So I was looking for that, but simultaneously looking for something else that was outside of, of the legal space. And when I met and interviewed David Sherman of the CEO, CEO of Lawline, and I interviewed with him maybe three times before I was hired, I never looked back. I was like, this is exactly the type of person I want to work for. I want to work for someone I believe in. I'm telling you this not because he's my boss. Like This is eight years later. Like uh, yeah. I, He still, to this day, he is someone that you want to work with people that, that you believe in, that share your values, um, but that still challenge you, treat you like a human being. And he was all of those things. And he was able to show all those things in those interviews. And I was like, this is exactly what I'm looking for. And I was very lucky to have gotten that job. How did you meet him in the first place? I was going to ask. I got it on LinkedIn. They posted a job for a program attorney on LinkedIn. I applied. I went through. They had a, at the time, it's a little different now the way our hiring process goes, but at the time you had to not only you know send your resume and a cover letter, but they also had a core value questionnaire where you had to answer questions as they relate to the core values of the company. So that that's the way they, they were screening people at the time. And we still screen people for core values, but in a different way. And if you pass the core value test and their resume review, then you were able to, to come in for an interview. That's pretty early adapting for LinkedIn uh, based on the timing you're describing, mm-hmm. you know, the behemoth that it is now. No, it was not. 2012. But I was very diligently looking for work all the time. I mean, I was hustling. I mean, it was... It was the time to hustle. I mean, there was very little out there. And so I was every, every single site you could possibly imagine that had job postings, I was diligently looking. That's a good sign too of present job dissatisfaction. I remember I could gauge how happy I was in my current job by, did I check the ads? Did I check to see if anybody's <laughs> yeah. hiring? I remember yeah. Yeah. finally a place when I stopped, you know, I'm like, yeah, yeah. yeah. cool. If you're in a romantic relationship and you're looking at uh, dating sites, that's probably not a good sign either. Exactly. 
So, Sagal, the reason I asked that question about was it difficult for you to leave, because I, I made the same decision, uh, not in terms of what, what I went to, but I found myself one morning in my drive to the New Jersey Attorney General's office at about 7.30 a.m., pounding the steering wheel, because I was so miserable, and I just didn't want to go to work. And that was not so subtle a sign that I needed to do something differently. And I had no conflict either. I was, when people say, boy, that was courageous of you to leave the law after all that hard work you put in and money. And for me, it was not a hard decision because I was just so unhappy. Me too. And I needed to find something that was filled me up that I knew wasn't going to be perfect either, but that was closer to what I wanted to do and who I wanted to be. Yeah. I think there's very few times in my life that I can look back and say, like, I was 100% sure that what I was doing Mm -hmm. was the correct choice. Even when I applied for law school, I wasn't 100% sure that that was the right thing to do. You know, I was like 89% sure or something like that. But, you know, there's always a little self-doubt. This was one of those moments where I had no doubt. Mm -hmm. No doubt. So let's talk a little bit about the situation now and the challenges that um, Lawline is having and you personally regarding COVID. Absolutely. First and foremost, I'll talk a little bit about Lawline. Being that we are an online continuing legal education company, um, we were clearly positioned and we're grateful to be positioned in a little bit of a stronger position than maybe people that were doing live in-person CLEs and things of that nature. Uh, so we were already in a place where, you know, we didn't have to change like our business too much. And in addition to that, we were already a company where our CEO, David, is living in Barcelona. Uh, we have one of our executive team members living in Ithaca. I was mainly working from home. I had just become a mother of two um, in the last few years. So I was working from home and Everybody in the company had the option to work from home really as much as they wanted to. And, you know, and then of course we have our, you know, people that wanted to come in, they were able to. So we were already like on our way towards being, we were very comfortable with online learning. We were very comfortable with remote working, but still like going from business that was, you know, a hybrid to a full-fledged remote uh, company with no studio, which was the biggest part of our business model that we had to change due to COVID, was still a transition. Now, all of a sudden, our producers are filming all of their programs from home instead of in our studio. And there's a lot of logistics and technologies and security that we had to go through. Also, making the decision to make everyone work from home before New York actually passed the stay-at-home Law, we we actually decided about a week beforehand that we were sending everyone home because we we kind of saw it coming and we knew that it was going to happen and uh, we wanted to get a head start on that. So there was a lot of logistics and challenges as a leader of a company while dealing with your own emotional, mental stuff around the pandemic, trying to work while my, my two babies are at home and also move an entire company remote and make sure that our core product is still working. So there was a lot that was going on in March, and it was extremely, extremely difficult. But we, we got it done, and I have a really great team that helped us get it done. So that was from a business perspective, one of the things that was really challenging. Before you move on, David is in Barcelona. That's where he yeah. lives. Yeah, so David moved with his family. Oh, my goodness. To, yeah, they moved to Barcelona about August of last year, they moved. Wow. And it was amazing, and him and his family were able to travel and really enjoy. And then, as we all know, Spain was hit very hard with the pandemic. He was already stay-at-home well before the United States was even considering that. And he was a big reason why we took the measures as quickly as we did, because he was him and I were in contact all the time. You know, we have to be. And 
he was like, so God, it's, it's time. It's, it's getting so bad here and it's going to happen in the United States and we need to, we need to start preparing. And that's what we focused on. We, we put all other endeavors on hold and we focus very deeply and efficiently and quickly to just get things moving for a line. Well, don't tell Chris, but I, I may see if there are any job openings at your Barcelona headquarters. <laughs> Oh, uh, uh, it's I, hard enough. It's hard enough to be bi-coastal, but to be bi-continental <laughs> would really test our. Well, we actually were temporarily bi-continental a couple of times when you went over to Germany and yeah, Japan. So I that's have true. had to adjust to uh, different time zones for your sake. This is true. Um, so Sagal, I'm sorry I cut you off. You were you were about to talk about your personal challenges. I think. Yeah. And I mean, just, you know, sprinkled into all of that is like everyone was a lot of personal challenges. I have two babies. They're 11 months apart. I had two babies in one year and they're not twins. <laughs> one in January of 2018 and one in December of 2018. I also moved into this chief operating role in between those two maternity leaves. And so I was adjusting to be not just a mother of one, but mother of two and a new role. And then the pandemic hit as well. Wow. And there was a lot of other people I had to take care of, you know, in the company and make sure that they were they were being supported. So it was a lot. But again, this is where it's so important where you work and who you work with, because the amount of support and flexibility and just compassion throughout all of that allowed me to continue to do my job and be there for my family at the same time. You mentioned earlier writing and you, you have a, a vehicle we should probably mention where you write about that, about sort of juggling mm-hmm. all these different things. Sure. Tell us the exact it, name. It's chiefoperatingmommy.com. Um, Chief Operating Mommy. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it has a few different meetings. I mean, I'm obviously the Chief Operating Officer of Lawline, and I have learned a lot about business in, in the eight years that I've been at Lawline and feel like I a lot of the business leadership principles that I learned can be very easily applied to being a parent hence the mommy part. But in addition to that, being a parent is also being a chief operating officer, regardless of your business background, there is so much that you have to coordinate and understand. I try to kind of discuss all of those things and how they kind of intertwine and how they play out for me. If anyone's interested, they should check it out. I don't promote anything. I just try to hope, I just hope that I can share what I'm learning and that it helps other people. Well, I know you had the one thing on there that Michael and I had both talked about that was uh, impactful mm-hmm. for us and that we used yeah. actually or brought to some other people, which was the, the talk a little bit about the the piece that you wrote about, sure. hey, how do we want to look back on pandemic time, Corona time and, and say we were, you, you, you do it better justice than I am. Oh, thank you. I, I wrote it back in like mid-March. Things were really starting to to get real for everyone. And I just remember everyone struggling with uncertainty. What does it look like? How, when is this going to end? What is this? I mean, we still are, but I think we're like a little bit more, I don't know, we have some thicker skin now around uncertainty than we did back in March. But what I realized is like, I, I can't actually, I, I can't predict the future, but what I can do is I can ask myself, who's the person that I want to be during this time? And, and who's the person that my future me will say they're proud of? And wh- what would I be proud of? And by doing that, I was able to kind of really focus on the priorities, like how I wanted to focus my life through this pandemic. And I wrote, you know, a bunch of different things. The main things were I want to make sure I was a good partner. I want to tell Michael and Chris that I played with my kids a lot. I wanted mm-hmm. to be on podcasts telling people that I led my team with compassion that I supported people that needed me, that I didn't contribute to the noise, and that I practiced self-care, and that I stayed calm and focused on what I can control. And by doing and by creating this piece, what I did was I provided for myself a roadmap 
for my behaviors. And if my behaviors didn't align with my roadmap, then I either thought about why or I let it go and kept focused on the things that I, I told myself were the, were the things that were going to make future me proud. And I check back with this article a lot that I wrote for my own self to make sure that I'm still staying aligned with what I said I was going to do. That's huge. You know, what's cool about that too, Sagal, is that you like writing and this is, it's small, you know, it's limited writing, right? I mean, these are short pieces, but you're, you're incorporating some of what you love into your life, which is nice. I love writing. I always, I've always written for myself. I write for myself and those things aren't published. And then I write for others, which, you know, I do publish. I try not to put too much pressure on myself when I write. I write really truly from a place of like whoever this can resonate with and help with, like I hope it does. Yeah. And it, it also just kind of solidifies like, again, the person's the person that I want to be and solidifies like the things that I've learned. It's a great exercise for me. It's very therapeutic. That's the end of part one of our interview with Seagal Barnes. We'll have part two next week. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Thriving Lawyers podcast. We love hearing from our loyal listeners, so please feel free to email us any questions, comments, suggested topics, or guest recommendations at the following address, feedback at thrivinglawyerspodcast.com. The Thriving Lawyers podcast is brought to you by Real-Time Creative Learning Experiences, a national provider of continuing legal education and professional development programs that leave participants engaged, encouraged, and equipped to pursue meaningful and sustainable change in their practices, their lives, and the organizations they work in. And by Osborne Conflict Resolution, your experienced guides through the uncharted terrain of business and family law disputes based out of Charlotte, North Carolina. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Thriving Lawyers Podcast.